I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and the Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on in 2020. So I'll just have a few remarks today. I'm back in the campaign mode. I'm running for governor of New York. We're about to start a big petition drive. Um, I will put in the private chat, uh, well, so it can go into public chat, uh, a website that will go live soon about our campaign. Um, and, you know, we've got probably the most difficult petition maybe in the world to get on a ballot, thanks to our disgraced and now resigned Governor Andrew Cuomo, who got passed under the cover of the COVID uh, lockdown as part of the state budget in 2020, uh, tripling the number of signatures we need to get in 42 days, went from 15,000 to 45,000. And he doubled the frequency we need to, uh, well, and then tripled the number of votes we need to stay on the ballot from what was 50,000 for a gubernatorial candidate every four years to the law says 130,000 or 2%, whichever is greater. It's always going to be 2%. In uh, 2020, it was 173,000. That's more than triple what we had to get before. And we got to get it twice as frequently. So, you know, we, we got this big problem with the Dem Republicans making it harder for people to vote and trying to take over election administration so they can steal elections. But on the other side of the aisle, the Democrats are making it harder for any challengers to get on the ballot. And uh, so that's, you know, the Andrew Cuomo legacy. We've been shopping the bill around to get back to the old standard. Uh, and, the, you know, Democrats we talk to say, yeah, you're right. This was wrong, what we did. But uh, we can't uh, cross the governor now that we're in election year. So we're not getting any help from that end. So we got to get 45,000 signatures in 42 days, which is going to be a big job. We just had a, a, a petitioning workshop on Zoom. Uh, we got a lot of volunteers. We're going to give it our best shot. And if we do get on the ballot, you were running against a center-right corporate Democrat named Kathy Hochul, who was Cuomo's pick for lieutenant governor. And she's raising money from Cuomo's old uh, financial base, probably at a rate faster than he ever did. You know, basically that's Wall Street and the real estate industry, along with other corporate interests. So you got a center-right candidate and a Republican, whichever one emerges, uh, Lee Zeldin's a congressman. Uh, Rob Astorino's a former county executive. And then you got Andrew Giuliani, Rudy's boy, who uh, is being challenged. They already filed their petitions. Uh, those that didn't get designated by the state party had to petition. They, got they, they had to get 15,000 signatures, one-third of what we got to get. Another disparity. Um, and, and Andrew Giuliani's whining that he's being challenged by the other Republicans. So, you know, maybe... You know, Greens are always challenged, but these people are cutthroat. They will challenge each other. In any case, uh, we got a big job. If we can get on a ballot, there's a huge vacuum on the political left in New York. When we got 5% in 2014, uh, Andrew Cuomo had wanted to run up his vote, get more than his father, Mario Cuomo, ever got as governor, more than he got when he was first elected in 2010, and he got less because the Green Party's sitting there with 5%. And so he had to compete for our voters. And so what we got out of that election was a ban on fracking, $15 minimum wage, and uh, paid family leave, and even made a gesture toward tuition-free public college. It wasn't. It was a scholarship that only 2 or 3% of public college uh, students can take advantage of. So, But he, he was trying to make the gestures. So we leveraged the political system our way, even with just 5% of the vote. We have the potential to do that again here in New York where even though they proclaim we got the most advanced uh, climate action energy transition program in the country, it's still not up to what we need by a long shot to deal with this climate crisis. New York has an economy as large as Russia's. It's about 10th or 11th in the world. What we do here makes a big difference. And then, as I mentioned last week, our upstate cities have the highest poverty rates of child poverty and family poverty in the country. And they just passed the state budget uh, at a time when they have a bigger surplus than they maybe have ever had, and there was no anti-poverty program. So we got real issues uh, that we're going to raise. Now we're starting this petition 
just as my region, central New York, and a little further south, we call it the southern tier of New York, uh, the Center for Disease Control said people got to start putting masks back on because we are apparently the first place in this country to have uh, a, a surge in Omicron COVID cases with the new variants BA.2.12 and BA.2.12.1. And it's very uh, contagious. So we get to go out and petition in another COVID way. Uh, and, you know, there's nobody in the state government that's going to give us relief. So, you know, we're going to be out there with our masks and hand sanitizer and do the best we can. Meanwhile, you know, the Ukraine war is headed toward the probably decisive battle in the eastern Donbass region. And, you know, we'll have to see what happens there. But that is uh, something obviously we're all concerned about. And meanwhile, in response to that, we got the political leadership of this country. You know, they had the oil company CEOs in there. I think it was last week. Uh, instead of urging them to, you know, uh, stop producing more oil and, and, you know, invest what resources their companies have in renewables, they're calling for them to produce more oil and gas. Of course, so that the Europeans can put oil and gas sanctions on Russia. But uh, the point is the money should be invested in renewables and get off of gas and get off of oil. So we're going in the wrong direction. And, you know, they're opening up public lands in this country. Biden has been a terrible climate president. And, uh, you know, they're not even got a build back better as build back never, it looks like right now. And it wasn't an adequate program, as I've talked about before. And finally, I'll just flag another issue, immigration. You know, we got atrocities at the border, uh, really haven't changed much since Trump. But now we got this refugee crisis. We have opened up from 15,000 refugees this year to 125,000 next year, 100,000 Ukrainians. But what about the refugees from Central America and Haiti and Libya and Syria and Afghanistan? Uh, we need to demand that they all have equal treatment and a fair and rapid uh, processing of their asylum requests. So, you know, there are a whole lot of issues we got to deal with. And uh, I'm going to leave it there for today. And uh, I'm looking forward to your questions and comments. And I'll put that website uh, for our campaign in New York, where you would be able to uh, make contributions to the campaign and volunteer at the petition if you're in the area and uh just see what we're talking about now this won't this isn't live yet it should be live tomorrow or monday um so just uh, copy this down and take a look in a day or two so i put that in the private chat so it'll get to the public chat So I usually talk more and uh, I want to give y'all more chance to uh, ask your questions. So um, fire away or make a comment. Hi, Amy L. Sachs. Just got my booster a couple of hours ago, still masked, but they lifted restrictions at my job and made that optional. Yeah, we got the Democrats chasing the Republicans to say, declare that uh, the COVID pandemic is over. Go back to work, go shop, even if you're doing it at, at risk without any, without any uh, adherence to public health measures. And uh, this is going to get people killed. We've had a million killed in this country. That our, our per capita rate is four times the world average. It's the highest of any rich country because we have resistance to common sense public health measures. And the Biden administration is doing this uh, at the bidding of big business that just wants us to go back to work and, and go shopping and, and act like there's no virus out there. And this is this is really a deadly game. So yeah, I got my second booster uh, last week and uh, no side effects. Uh, but I'm going to be out there with my N95 mask and my hand sanitizer petitioning. Frankly, I'm, I'm worried about that because we got this highly contagious variant right here centered in central New York where I'm at. It'll probably spread around the country. 
Um, and it's just, uh, it's just a shame that, uh, you know, the, the people resist public health measures, it gets people killed, and you get a lot of nonsense about, you know, the masks don't work and the vaccines don't work. You know, the, the evidence we're getting from the medical community, the statistics show they, they do work. They're not 100%, uh, but they do resist, re, re, reduce transmission, and if you're vaccinated, uh, reduces the likelihood that you'll get very sick. But even people, I mean, there's an article I read yesterday from National Geographic about how even people that have mild symptoms when they get sick, uh, they have long-term impact on their brains. I mean, this goes after your nervous system and people that have COVID, they're losing gray matter. It's shrinking our brains. This is a serious disease. And for people to have this cavalier attitude and act like nothing's going on, you know, just burns the hell out of me because a lot of people are injured. We're gonna have a lot of long-term disability. Um, and we're just still not really taking this serious. In fact, we're taking it less serious than we did a year ago. I think Biden's setting himself up for another uh, disappointment like last year when he said, you know, remember a year ago by July 4th, we could all, all go out barbecue like, you know, nothing had changed. We were back to normal. Well, by declaring the pandemic over uh, and saying we're through with COVID, the problem is COVID is not through with us. So, you know, I just urge people to take care of themselves. Eric Gray. So how should K-12 schools handle the new COVID-19 wave and what needs to be done with K-12 education moving forward as college and university is financially out of the reach of most Americans? Well, I think in, in you know, teachers in Chicago, my former running mate for Lieutenant Governor and New York GLE, um, you know, have led this year efforts by teachers to get better public health measures, better ventilation, continuing to use the masks, social distancing, all the things we can do to reduce the spread of COVID in our schools. And I think that's what we need to be pushing and supporting, you know, the teachers who are taking the lead on this. Um, K-12 education moving forward. Well, you know, in the, in the presidential campaign, we said, we should fund public education through more progressive federal taxes uh, with revenue sharing. So that it's not dependent on a property tax, which is unequally distributed. And it should be uh, you know, much more generous. We should invest in education. Um, it, it pays off for all of us. And uh, you know, as far as college and university, uh, the public colleges and universities should be tuition free. And again, that's something we can fund out of federal progressive taxes with revenue sharing. Um, and then as you know, people that want to go to private universities and they want to borrow money, the, the loan program should be interest-free. This is after we cancel existing debt, student loan debt. And you know, the federal government should not be collecting interest on these loans. You know, the principal may be changed with the cost of living, but not adding interest on top of that. Because the point is we're helping people get an education. And again, these are investments that uh, we should make that many particularly rich countries already do make, and even some countries not so rich, uh, in getting their uh, young people uh, college and university educations. Um, and this is, you know, it's not being debated in Congress. Uh, really wasn't part of Build Back Better. Um, they did want to expand pre-K, which, you know, I think they want to go to universal pre-K, which is good, but not much money for K-12 and certainly not to uh, provide uh, tuition assistance. And then, you know, Biden, who made promises about limited student loan cancellations, hasn't done any. So again, you know, you know, what could, you know, what are we, the Democrats like these, why do we need Republicans? It's just become, you know, a center-right party. In Europe, that's where it'd be on the spectrum with the Christian Democrats. And uh, there's a huge vacuum on the left in this country that we can fill and we, we need to. Violet at Content Boutique. Howie, why do the Republicans get their way no matter who wins elections? We're following Republican policy with COVID now. Yeah, because the Democrats don't know how to fight fascists. You know, we were all told we got to stop Trump by voting for Biden. And what has happened? 
Well, first of all, you have to recognize there's a conservative wing in the Democratic Party, people like Joe Manchin and Cinema, and a dozen or more uh, conservative Democrats in the House. So the progressives, and Biden did have, you know, for him, very progressive programs in his Build Back Better, his American Jobs Plan, and his American Families Plan, which was the care economy stuff. Um, and, you know, uh, that was the influence of the progressives, Bernie Sanders. But once it got to the votes in the House and the Senate, they never had them. And the progressives tried to play this inside game. And they didn't have the votes. I mean, that was a time when they should have been going to the public and, you know, building movements and making the demands irresistible. And instead of counting on, you know, deals with Biden and Manchin and, you know, first we're going to split the program and we'll do infrastructure first and then we'll do the rest with Build Back Better. And they got stabbed in the back. And, you know, we still see them playing this. The Progressive Caucus in Congress just endorsed uh, the, uh, you know, straight line corporate Democrat uh, who beat Nina Turner in that last uh, congressional election for the House in, in Cleveland. And they're, they're having a rematch. And the Congressional Progressive Caucus you know, uh, went with the corporate party line, not with the progressive in that race. So, you know, the way you fight fascists is you fight them. You actually stand your ground and explain to people why what you're offering is better instead of trying to accommodate to the conservatives in your own party, the Democrats, who then accommodate to the fascists in the Republican Party. And that dynamic just keeps taking us to the right. And, uh, that's why we're, you know, on most social indicators, way behind other rich countries. Uh, we're not dealing with the climate crisis. Um, you know, I've, I've said it's controversial with some people that I support sending arms to the Ukrainians to resist the Russian invasion. But we don't need to increase our military budget to do that. We got so many damn weapons and resources there. We can send them what we already have. Instead, with the support of almost everybody in both parties, they're increasing the military budget from what they just passed for this coming fiscal year of, uh, what was it, 773 billion, I believe. Uh, and, and Biden just proposed 813 billion for the next fiscal year, including I think 30 or 40 billion for nuclear weapons modernization. You know, we're in a new nuclear arms race and we got Putin, you know, saber rattling his nukes, his tactical nukes anyway. Um, you know, we should be going in the opposite direction. And instead, we're not. So why do Republicans get their way? Because the Democrats don't really fight them. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of Turner running again? Well, I'm glad she's sticking to it. Um, and, you know, it's too bad she's not getting support from progressives in the Democratic Party around the country. Maybe it's time for the Green Party to talk to her. I know Jill Stein had a talk with her in 2016. Um, you know, she's being told by those actions that she's not welcome. But, uh, you know, her policy positions are closer to ours than the Democrats anyway. So maybe it's time to, uh, you know, for us to talk to her. Emil Sachs. Also, at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, there will be a house party online for our green candidate for Portland City Auditor, Brian Setzler. Hope to hear about or from other local candidates around the country. <coughs> yeah, I ran for City Auditor of, of Syracuse one time uh, against a Democrat who wasn't doing anything. In fact, he saw his job as just ratifying what the mayor was doing. Everybody here are Democrats. Um, there's a lot a city auditor can do. Uh, you know, do all kinds of studies, expose what's going wrong in the city, uh, address fiscal issues. It's really an important position that uh, I hope, I wish more Greens would look at. I don't know about Brian Setzler, but, uh, you know, send me some information. Maybe we should have him on his podcast to talk about his race. Scout Trooper 164, what are your thoughts about the revelation that Biden has deep ties with Amazon. Uh, no surprise, he's a corporate Democrat. Um, I, I'm not sure, you know, if there's been, <coughs> excuse me, a new revelation that I haven't seen yet, but I'm not surprised to hear that. 
I mean, he comes from Delaware where, you know, they have these lax uh, corporate laws where a lot of these corporations and LLCs incorporate. That's where Michael Cohen set up the LLC to pay off uh, that uh, porn star that Biden had some kind of relationship with before the 2016 election because it's, you know, hard to track those things. So Biden, you know, has been a corporate shill his whole life. So um, whatever the ties are with Amazon would not surprise me in the least. Frankie Lee, Howie, is there anything we can do on the local level to encourage masking and public policies to keep these spikes from happening? Well, we got to speak up and we got to challenge, you know, our elected officials. And, uh, you know, they are hearing it from businesses, no doubt. Um, they got to hear from the rest of us. Um, and if you're running, you know, as a local candidate, you can, you know, talk about why we need to take these public health measures. Um, and then, you know, we, we got to keep talking about what the evidence is about masking and vaccination. Uh, reducing the transmission and the severity of illness, which is well established, you know, from the data we've got from this pandemic, even though there's a lot of misinformation out there questioning all that from dubious sources. So, you know, we just got to, you know, patiently explain to people why we need this and then put the pressure on our elected officials or, or run against them to put even more pressure on them. Emil Sachs asks, I guess Frankie Lee, I'd be interested to hear what she says about defunding cops since she's from a L.E. family, um, L.E. family. So that's an abbreviation I'm not familiar with. I'm sure somebody will put in the chat what I'm missing. Um, law enforcement, of course. Um, so defunding the cops. Um, you know, we're in a situation now where with uh, there being more shootings and, uh, you know, property crimes actually going up post-COVID, um, there's a big push to put more cops on the streets, spend more money on cops. When we know, again, from data that the best way to reduce crime is to reduce poverty and the conditions that, you know, frustrate people. you got course, mental health issues, but mainly uh, people are, are poor and they're frustrated with their condition in life. And uh, so we need program, particularly for at-risk youth um, who are the most likely shooters and uh, property crime, uh, you know, people that do property crimes. And uh, now where we have got it done, like Richmond, California, uh, they got some of their uh, police budget put into social services. And this is a legacy of a green mayor, Gail McLaughlin, who, uh, when she became mayor, I think it was 2004, uh, implemented a program uh, with a new uh, police chief uh, where they, the cops, instead of, uh, you know, their promotions being based on arrests and tickets uh, and their focus being on, you know, grabbing uh, young people who might be or did commit crimes uh, to building relationships in the community through community policing and uh, working with the community to, you know, prevent crime. And that was a city with a murder rate that was one of the highest in the country for decades, a city of about 100,000 uh, with a murder rate of over 40 per year for year after year after year. And it was 44 the year this program started. And by the end of eight years, uh, when Gail McLaughlin's term ended, uh, they they reduced the murders that year to seven, uh, as well as reduced other forms of crime. And then they had some fiscal problems, and they cut the the, the other side of it. Beside community policing, was they put money into social services, particularly working with the youth in the gangs that were doing most of the shootings, 
and uh, they they got a philanthropist to give those uh, young people a thousand dollars a month if they stayed out of trouble. That was a big incentive. They had a, a big program of uh, youth workers working with these kids, showing them other opportunities, uh, recreation programs, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, last year, in the wake of the George Floyd protests, uh, Richmond, where a lot of these uh, people in the Richmond Progressive Alliance, which includes Greens like Gail McLaughlin was, she's now unenrolled, um, and other progressives, they 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 got the uh, police budget cut and that money was put into social services. Now they decided very consciously, they, they had a group called Reimagine Richmond, uh, which worked with the Richmond Progressive Alliance to come up with this public safety platform. And they consciously didn't use the uh, phrase defund the police because for a lot of people that sounds like no police, we're gonna get rid of the police force. And in Richmond where uh, the Black Panther Party was active when I was coming up in the Bay Area in the late 1960s, as well as Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco, the Panthers put forward a community control of the police platform. And I remember Bobby Seale saying that uh, we don't want to get rid of the police. We want good police instead of pigs, which they call these abusive cops that were just running roughshod over the black communities in those cities. And, uh, you know, I still think that's a ticket. I know that people in high crime neighborhoods, I live in one, they are angry at the cops for abusing people and harassing them for the petty stuff. But when the serious stuff happens, they're slow to respond and the investigations don't seem to be that serious. I think I might have mentioned this before, but right outside my window, there was over 20 gunshots fired. And it was actually fired at some people who were having an evening candlelight thing uh, to commemorate another young person who had been murdered. And, you know, this is inner gang stuff. Somebody came by, jumped out of a car and shot 20 uh, shots at that gathering. Uh, most of them ended up hitting a, a building uh, way above their heads. So maybe they didn't really want to hit anybody in that attack. But so the cops came. My light was on. They could see how the light was on right underneath my window on the street. And they, you know, they put their little flags down and numbered the number of uh, casings, you know, shell casings they had. They never knocked on my door to see if I'd seen anything. Of course, when all those shots went off, I hit my floor. I really didn't see much, but that's what I mean. They they don't do serious investigation. They just do the minimum and they get out of out of dodge. They get out of the neighborhood. In my city, ninety percent of the cops are white. The city's been under a federal uh, injunction to make the police force uh, reflect the community in terms of race. The community of the city of Syracuse is now half people of color. You know, black is the largest group. Um, a lot of Latinos, particularly Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, a lot of immigrants from all over the world, uh, South Asians, Latin Americans, um, Middle Easterners, and uh, the police force doesn't reflect that. And uh, so, you know, we have people coming in from outside the community and, and they're afraid of the community. They don't understand it. They don't know it. Um, that's the kind of policing we got we to gotta change. And then we don't have the programs for our youth. I mean, about a block from here, sort of kitty corner from where I'm at is a former youth uh, center. Not very much. It's basically like a trailer. Uh, and before about 10 years ago when that was cut, uh, it had a capacity for, you know, like 200 kids to sign up for the summers. And they'd have over a thousand kids sign up. And, you know, that program's been shut down. Uh, uh, Southside Community Coalition, a nonprofit I work with, uh, we got the Syracuse University to do a, a youth uh, program where it taught kids how to use computers and whatnot. That program's been shut down. And that was full every afternoon. So the need is there. And that's the kind of thing that we'll do. You know, all the cops can do is uh, catch the crime, catch the criminal after the crime's been committed. Uh, just putting more cops out there, you know, so anybody who's got, you know, ill will in mind is just going to wait for the cops to move on and then do it. Uh, it's uh, more cops doesn't prevent crime. We, we want enough, particularly to do the investigative side. So we catch people who are doing harm. We want them off the street, but uh, you don't need more cops. You need better cops. 
to do that kind of work. So I don't even remember the original question. It was about, I guess, defunding the police. And I like the, you know, moving for Black Lives slogan better, you know, divest from the police, invest in the community. Um, because I, you know, like I said, I think, you know, most people they don't want no cops, but they definitely want good cops. And they also support these social services. You know, I know that from going around this community, you're talking about youth recreation programs and helping the kids in trouble, and everybody says yes. So uh, we just don't fund that. The police are very powerful politically. Um, in most cities, they're you know unions well organized. They got a lot of money, and they they do exert uh, pressure on on uh, politicians. Steve Talbot, it seems like increasing policing is the easier action for the rich because it costs them less and because they have no interest in raising up others to be equals. Yeah, that's absolutely it. I mean, what the cops do is they over-police in the poor communities and let a lot of stuff that's illegal, you know, get, uh, you know, particularly like in the drugs, uh, they, they don't go out in the in affluent suburbs and, and you know, be stopping people at random to see if they got drugs on them, uh, which is what they do in the, in the inner cities. Um, and what the cops are really there to do is police those boundaries. We're divided by race and class uh, across, you know, political boundaries, uh, like cities versus suburbs, and also by neighborhoods within cities where some neighborhoods are, you know, upper middle class and others are, are lower income. And the cops police those borders. Um, and that's what the rich hire them to do. That's really, you know, what they've done. This has been the case going back to, you know, the, the original source of organized policing in this country, which was slave catching. And uh, so we got to change that whole mindset. The, the police are not, uh, you know, they come in here, a lot of them are veterans. They come in with a warrior mentality. What we need is, you know, peace officers who are training conflict uh, resolution and de, you know, de-escalating conflict and keeping the peace. And that can prevent crimes, you know, when they show up at a situation where there's, you know, domestic conflict going on or, you know, there's an altercation on the streets. Um, you know, that's really a tougher job than just being, you know, kind of a warrior who can go out and, you know, catch criminals and, um that kind of thing. So, yeah, we, we have a police force that the wealthy want because it uh, protects them in their gated communities. Vicki Corden, I heard the United States will go in recession. I think the super wealthy create crisis so they can get more profits. Well, I don't think it's that much in control of the super wealthy. The, the capitalist system has contradictions and its instabilities that are inherent to it. Um, now, what the super rich do is they take advantage, whether, you know, the economy is going up or down. Uh, when it's in recession and unemployment goes up, they squeeze our wages and uh, ask for concessions, you know, in contract negotiations and so forth. And when the economy is going up, uh, you know, they make more, more profits from more sales. So they, they work it going both ways uh, because they're in a position to do that because they own, you know, the major means of production. That's where the wealth is generated. And uh, they appropriate value that we create by our labor, whether the economy is up or down. So uh, as far as the economy going into recession, I, I hear the economists debating that. Um, and I haven't, you know, really looked closely at where we're at. I think long-term we're in a sustained stagnation because we have excess capacity. We can produce pretty much everything people need in most respects. And there's just not the demand to buy it. People don't have the income to buy that demand, which creates stagnation. And that means companies then turn to uh, financial schemes or rating the public treasury, like the privatization of education with charter schools. That's a $600 billion revenue stream in this country. And they, they, 
they're not investing in new production. What they're trying to do is grab revenue streams uh, that they don't have control of yet. And that's particularly in the public sector. So that's something we got to watch out for. Steve Talbot, will renewable technology advance advances happen fast enough to make up for the lack of regulating against climate change? It seems like big corporations are depending on it. Uh, I think we have the advances we need. Uh, with the technologies we have in wind, solar, uh, battery more and more, energy storage, um, we, we can go to 100% clean energy. Uh, and I think we can do it in a decade based on, you know, what engineers like Mark Jacobson at uh, Stanford has been showing for years. Um, so the problem is it's not going to happen just because the market says, well, wind and solar are cheaper than oil and gas uh, and coal because and nuclear because, uh, for example, the power utilities, they already got those power plants. They're not going to shut them down to go solar and wind until those power plants are worn out if it's operating in the private sector in the market. Um, same thing with transportation, uh, you know, to, to replace uh, such a big emphasis on private vehicles and, and trucking rather than mass transit and, and freight rails. Uh, you know, the auto and, and railroad companies are not going to do that. It's a big investment. Uh, they're going to, you know, get uh, sell as many personal vehicles and trucks as they can. It's going to take public policy. And I believe public ownership of the railroads for sure, maybe the auto companies if they don't play along, certainly the big oil and gas companies, as well as the utilities. So we can plan this transition and implement the technology we already have. Uh, that's the problem with the whole uh, progressive version progressive democratic version of the Green New Deal. You know, that was the Green Party's signature uh, theme throughout the uh, 2010s. And when it got in the hands of the Democrats after Sunrise and AOC sat in Pelosi's office and the Green New Deal concept went viral, got a lot of media coverage, the uh, non-binding resolution for a Green New Deal that was put in by uh, AOC and Senator Markey you know, it was a big, really a watered down version. It got rid of the uh, the ban on fracking and new fossil fuel infrastructure, the phase out of nuclear power, the deep cuts in military spending to reduce or to help pay for the Green New Deal. It extended by two decades, 20 years from 2030 to 2050, when we reach uh, zero emissions, except they called it net zero emissions, which is what the fossil fuel companies want, because then they can keep burning fossil fuels with uh, carbon capture and, and storage technology that we don't have. So it, it, it's really problematic from that respect. Um, so, you know, we, and, and, and then the other part, and this was all through Build Back Better, is that instead of running this through the public sector where we can coordinate, you know, what needs to be done in all the sectors, not just power, electric power production, but manufacturing, buildings, agriculture, and especially transportation, which is the biggest sector of greenhouse gases, um, they leave it to corporations. They provide incentives, corporate welfare, you know, tax breaks, loan guarantees, uh, and subsidies. Uh, and so each company makes its own decisions by its own calculus, and it's uncoordinated. It's not going to get the transition done in the time frame we need, and it's not going to link up the different sectors like. <coughs> We want uh, housing and buildings to be gas and oil free by electrifying heating, cooling, and cooking. And, uh, you know, that requires a public program to finance it up front because most people don't have the capital to do it themselves. <coughs> and then you want to expand public housing to provide everybody with housing, uh, affordable option. And you want to integrate that with mass transit, you know, rail uh, transit. Um, and if the developers developing housing and the transportation system are not coordinating, you're not going to link those two things up. That's just one of many examples. 
<clears throat> so that's why we need revenues to the public sector instead of what the Democrats propose to do, which is basically, you know, kind of a Keynesian stimulus uh, with public subsidies for private corporations. It leaves the corporations that got us into this mess in charge. And uh, that's why we've been calling our Green New Deal the eco-socialist Green New Deal, because we've got to do it through the public sector, like we did in the World War II emergency, where the federal government took over the quarter of the manufacturing capacity of the country in order to turn industry on a dime into what FDR called the arsenal of democracy, darn the allies against the fascists. We need to do nothing less uh, to deal with climate change, to defeat climate change like the allies defeated the fascists. And uh, so, you know, the technology is there and it's more than regulation. We need to have public ownership and planning to implement this on the rapid time scale we need. And, you know, we're just just one statistic to illustrate uh, this latest uh, sixth assessment report from the International Panel on Climate Change says to have a 50% chance of staying below the 1.5 degrees Celsius rise in global temperatures. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions got a peak in 2025. That's a thousand days from now. Um, and, you know, it's not going to happen unless we have a real eco-socialist and global Green New Deal. Mark Blazin, are libertarians a spoiler in favor of greens? Uh, a spoiler in favor of greens? Maybe a little bit. Um, they do tend to take their votes from the right, the Republican side, uh, which weakens the Republicans' uh, uh, ability to scare progressives into voting for the lesser evil Democrats instead of the Greens. But I don't think that many people think it that through that far. Um, the other thing about the Libertarians is they vote for their people. Uh, they aren't so worried about um, the spoiler effect like progressives tend to be. Um, so in a certain way, they, they're an example for what the, the left should be in this country. You know, if we don't, and I said this many times during the campaign, you know, if we don't vote for what we want, we get lost in the sauce. You want Medicare for all, and you vote for Biden, he's against it. You want a Green New Deal, Biden was against it. You want a, uh, a real progressive tax program, tax the rich, uh, Biden was for it a little bit, but not really. Uh, you can go across all the issues, and if you don't vote for what you want, you silence your voice. You aren't heard. And I think that's what progressives don't get. That goes back partly to that earlier program about why the Democrats can't stop the Republicans. Because they try to accommodate them, and they compromise with them. And, you know, what we need is an independent left with its own program, its own identity. So it's seen as a real alternative, and not just... Uh, you know, sort of uh, the left wing of, of, you know, the Democratic Party or just outside of it. And people can, you know, sort of switch back and forth like they change brands of toothpaste. No, we're a fundamental alternative. We want system change. And, you know, that's the capitalist system that we, we want to democratize into a socialist system. And that's very different than what the Democrats are talking about. You know, across the board, including all the progressives who call themselves Democratic Socialists, they're really talking about New Deal liberalism, regulating capitalism, which can only take you so far. Capitalism uh, is structured to grow endlessly. That devours the environment. You're not going to have ecological sustainability under capitalism. It is based on exploiting people and extracting the value we create. That creates inequality, and particularly in this neoliberal period of deregulation. It, you know, that's why we have extreme and growing inequality. And then the competition between capitalists and the states they control leads to wars. And we're in a nuclear age. One of these days, if we don't stop the wars, we're going to have a nuclear war that's going to stop all of us. So, uh, you know, we need to see that we're a fundamental alternative, not just a little more progressive than these progressive Democrats who don't know how to fight the right. And that's why we need the Green Party and a, a real independent left. Emily, I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, what can be done to encourage folks to choose recycling and uncycling? 
Our streets in LA are littered with garbage. Well, I think one thing is to make it more convenient uh, so that there's plenty of, uh, you know, recycle bins and uh, that kind of thing. So that, you know, it's not a that too much effort to, to get the materials to the right place. Another thing is we need to make manufacturers responsible for their products when they're used up. So it goes back to the manufacturer and, uh, you know, they have to then reuse, recycle, uh, you know, the materials that were worn out from their product. Um, we need to have a zero waste strategy so that we're reducing the packaging. Um, we are only using recyclable materials. We get off plastics and back to materials that are inert or biodegradable um, because plastics is, is probably, you know, a huge problem. As you probably are aware that we now have microplastics in our lungs and our blood and that uh, there are chemicals there that are carcinogenic, mutagenic. In other words, they can change our genes, which can lead to cancer. Uh, some of them influence our hormones, our endocrine system. Uh, this has become something that there's nowhere on earth that's uh, uh, exempt from it. They find these microplastics at the deepest trenches of the ocean, in the Antarctic, on the highest mountaintops, and in, you know, almost all life forms. And, you know, so we're poisoning ourselves, and that's plastics. So, you know, we've got to, you know, basically some things, the way to control pollution is not to regulate it, but to ban it. Uh, very common are our foremost environmental scientists in the latter half of the 20th century made that point, you know, very clear in books like Making Peace with the Planet. He pointed out, this book came out around 1990, that after the uh, Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the Environmental Protection Act and all these things we got in around 1970, where we had success was where we just flat out banned the pollutant, like lead and gasoline or DDT. Uh, where we weren't being successful is where we were setting standards for pollution and letting the industrial uh, companies keep producing the pollutant and just trying to uh, limit the levels. And with uh, the, the rates limited per, you know, coming out of smokestack, the problem was the economy is growing and we're getting more of these pollutants in the environment as it is. So that's what we, that's the way we got to think about plastics and some of these other pollutants, including the, you know, carbon and, and uh, methane and so forth that are heating the planet. We got we to gotta phase them out as fast as possible. Um, so that's part. Of, and then you don't have materials that are, are dangerous to the environment. So if they're biodegradable or inert, even if they're litter, they're not causing environmental problems. Scott Trooper 164, what do you think of Jared Kushner accepting billions from Saudi Arabia? Uh, yeah, well, this is, you know, basically crooked authoritarians. Uh, That's how they do business. And, uh, you know, we should be, uh, you know, we get outraged about the human rights abuses of China and Russia, rightly in my opinion, but what about Saudi Arabia? Um, you know, we were still providing weapons to them for that dirty war in Yemen. Um, you know, it's just wrong. So I think uh, Jared Kushner, who is known to be a vicious landlord, uh, treats his tenants like they're dirt. Uh, I, I have the lowest possible opinion of him. Very few people below him, maybe his father-in-law. Um, so, you know, that's that's the way it works now. Uh, you know, rich people take care of each other. And the Saudis have a lot of sovereign wealth they can lend. I think it was a loan to Jared Kushner or an, a joint investment, but it was $2 billion. You know, just imagine, uh, you know, if we tried to spend all that money, if we had it, we couldn't, you know, living the life of luxury and traveling all over the world in the jet set class is just so much money. Vicki Corden, what do you think of software IDME? My concerns are government could use it against people's permission. And so 
is this private company, IDME? Well, you're asking me a question I don't know much about or anything about. I, I don't know what the software is or what it's supposed to do. So I, I really can't say much about it. Um, maybe if you put a little bit in the chat, uh, I might be able to say something about it, but it's something I'm not familiar with. Frankie Lee, Howie, any news on getting ballot access in more states for this year? And how's your race going in New York? Well, there are two, uh, there are a number of uh, ballot access petitions going on. Uh, Missouri, New Mexico, California's got to keep its uh, voter registration up in the Green Party. Um, but there are two petitions going on. Uh, in North Carolina, and we're going to start Tuesday in New York, that are important because uh, they'll get us ballot status for 2024. So whoever the Greens run in 2024 for on a presidential ticket, they'll have a head start on two very difficult states because they'll be on the ballot. Um, now, in, in North Carolina, Matthew Ho, we've talked about him. He's the former Marine Corps officer, served uh, two, two tours of duty in Iraq. And then was working at the State Department with the State Department in Afghanistan and resigned uh, very publicly with a resignation letter that uh, was widely read that the Council on Foreign Relations considers an essential document for understanding the war in Afghanistan. He resigned when Obama started his surge of uh, troops into Afghanistan in 2009. So Matthew's a prominent anti-war voice, uh, speaks from experience. And in North Carolina, I think they need 14,000 good signatures by mid-May. And uh, they started. Uh, last I heard, they had about 6,000 signatures. So, you know, crunch time's coming for them. Uh, and that's an important state. North Carolina historically has been one of the most difficult states in the country. They've got the law eased, but it's still not easy. Uh, Richard Winger of Ballot Access News noted uh, in one of his uh, – issues of that publication that no uh, petition that required more than 5,000 signatures was successful in 2020. Now we had the COVID lockdown. It was unusual time, but still that's a lot of signatures. And so they're trying to get 14,000 good signatures in North Carolina. Here in New York, we probably have the most difficult ballot access petition now in the country. Thanks to Cuomo, I might have said this earlier, you know, he tripled the requirements and did it attaching the law change to a state budget that passed under the cover of the COVID lockdown in April, 2020. So we got to get 45,000 signatures in 42 days. And uh, so we're just getting started in our race. Uh, that website, which I hope went in the chat is uh, going to be up soon. Uh, we got a nice little quarter sheet uh, flyer that I don't know how to put in the chat, but You'll see it on the website. Um, it can be downloaded and printed out and cut into quarter sheets. So if you're petitioning, you have something to hand to people after you get a signature. Um, so we're going to give it our best shot. As I said at the opening, there's a huge vacuum on the left in New York, and, and we aim to fill it. And uh, we got plenty of issues. You know, our emphasis is uh, a Green New Deal for New York, 100% clean energy and zero emissions in 10 years with a strong emphasis on public power utilities to build out that system and public banking and a tax the rich progressive tax reform to help pay for it. We got an economic bill of rights. We're calling for to end poverty with a guaranteed minimum income. The old demand of the poor people's campaign from 1968 that uh, Martin Luther King was uh, emphasized so much. Uh, we're calling for a, a fully public uh, universal health care system. We have a bill in New York called the New York Health Plan or New York Health, um, which has been passed in the state assembly since uh, the early 1990s. Uh, but now that the Democrats have both houses in their control as well as the governorship, they can't get it out of committee. That's uh, been the case now. This is going on the fourth year. Um, we, we support a universal public health care bill um, so that everybody has access. 
Uh, and that's the cheapest way to provide it through the school system rather than the you know kind of thing that Biden was proposing where you got to figure out your income. You don't pay more than 7%. You got to apply for the subsidies. It's very complicated, administratively uh, burdensome, and uh, a lot of people are going to fall through the cracks. We just want to make it it's available. And if you don't want to, uh, you know, send your child to child care, you know, before they turn four when the preschool program opens up, um, you could get a cash benefit to uh, to support you for home care. That's what we're talking about there. Tuition-free public college. Um, and then we want to expand, well, repair existing public housing and expand public housing. Have the state social housing authority and build out housing in the state to the point where everybody has an affordable option. And the private uh, real estate industry can't jack up rents. Rents are off the roof or off the chart in uh, particularly New York City metro area. And, uh, you know, so we got to we got to have more affordable housing options. <coughs> and then the third theme besides the Green New Deal and the Economic Bill of Rights is inclusive democracy. So we got three major points there. Uh, fair ballot access law. I talked about that earlier. The Democrats aren't going to do it, but we're going to demand it in the campaign. Put them, um, you know, on notice, you know, get them to take a position and congratulate them and ourselves if they uh, support it and shame them if they don't. And then we're talking about ranked choice voting for all statewide offices, you know, governor, lieutenant governor, uh, attorney general, uh, comptroller, U.S. senators and presidents and presidential tickets. And then proportional representation in the state legislature through multi-seat districts with ranked choice voting. And uh, <coughs> so that those are the highlights of our platform. And we think it will have broad appeal. And uh, it's there are issues that will not be discussed if we're not in the race. So. Uh, we hope to change the politics in New York State and leverage in our way in 2022. Lionel Mason, at what point do leaders of the Green Party realize that goalposts will be continuously moved for ballot access? And then violent revolution is indeed the only path forward for the working class. Well, I, I don't agree. I, I don't think we start going out there and taking violent acts. Uh, we take nonviolent acts. We build a mass movement in the elections and in the streets. Now, the violence may come from resistance from the ruling class. You know, just think of uh, Salvador Allende in Chile. They were elected. They were implementing reforms. And Pinochet in the army uh, attacked them. That's when, you know, it may become violent and we have to defend our revolution. But again, uh, most of that defense will be mass action. You know, a general strike, uh, occupying places of business and factories and operating them under workers' control. Um, and, you know, while self-defense is a part of that, uh, I think most of it will be nonviolent. I think the civil rights movement in this country was an example of that. You know, you had groups like the Deacons for Defense. You know, Martin Luther King had an arsenal. Bayard Rustin was you know kind of outraged when he got there in the late 1950s and King had all these weapons to defend himself and his family. Um, now their public actions were nonviolent, but when they met, they had armed guards so the Klan couldn't disrupt their organizing. So there's a place for self-defense in the movement for fundamental change, but um, you know I don't think we're not the ones calling for violence. We'll defend ourselves if the if the powerful try to suppress us with violence. And it's been an hour. So I, I really appreciate everybody and your questions. Next week, I will have my running mate, uh, Gloria Matera, who's running for Lieutenant Governor on our ticket in New York on the podcast. And we'll be talking about Issues in New York, probably more than national issues, but issues we got in New York, I'm sure are issues you got in your states, you know, whether it's health care, immigration, uh, militarism, uh, poverty, the climate crisis. I mean, we're all dealing with these issues. So uh, please join us next week.
and uh, have a good week uh, coming up.